You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. It'll be on the screen as we go through. Uh, But let's consider these verses. Um, John, the Gospel of John, is a biography of Jesus. Um, John is one of Jesus' closest friends and closest disciples. And he is writing this biography in order to convince us that Jesus is who he claims he is. And that he is able to save all who would put their trust in him. That's really the point of the whole book. So if you've been with us at all as we've been journeying through the Gospel of John this year, you'll realize that the sermons in many ways sound the same because again and again, John is is convincing us that Jesus proves to be the sinless Son of God and that he is capable of saving all who put their faith in him. And we'll see that again today as well. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from, where I came uh, and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You neither know me, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from above, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world, What I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. God, we ask for you to open up your word to us. Lord, we know that every time that we read your, your word, you are speaking. We don't have to seek some sort of mystical voice. We don't have to try to find some secret knowledge. Lord, but you, in your word, you speak. 
And so, Lord, as we look at Jesus and consider what he tells us here, we pray that you would help us to understand. And not just to understand, but to believe and to take hold of all that you desire for us to have and to feel about you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. There are four things I want to show you in this passage. Four truths, if you will, uh, uh, that Jesus himself unveils to us about our condition and about who he is. The first is this. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So as you're thinking about the darkness that you might be in, whatever form that might take, Jesus is making the audacious claim that he is the light, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. He is a light for anyone, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This statement is stunning when you think about the biblical context of, of what he's saying. There's three overlapping spheres that I want to point out to you today. One is the theme of light in John's gospel. If you were to read through this book, you would see that light is a consistent theme throughout this uh, biography of Jesus. John intends to show us that Jesus is light. And here is what he means. He, sa- he mentions the word light in relation to Jesus 24 times in the first 12 chapters of John. There are four different pockets of six times where uh, in the first 12 chapters, Jesus is referred to as light and described as light. The most direct is in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in John's prologue, where he gives really a summary of his whole book uh, at the beginning of the, of the gospel. He says this, John 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is like light shining into darkness. In John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Which means that there are false lights out there. There are, there are people, there are systems that claim to bring light to the world, but Jesus is the true light. He is the one who can back up the claim, and he gives light to everyone, and he has come into the world. So the theme of John Uh, The theme of light through John is woven all the way through that Jesus is the light of the world. The theme, but there's also the second sphere of the theme of light in all of Scripture. Light shows up quite a bit throughout the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Scholar Don Carson says this. He he, he says that in Psalm 27.1, it says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. In Psalm 119 and Proverbs 6, the word of the Lord, the law of God, is light to guide the path of those who cherish instruction. So God's word is spoken of as light. God's light is is shed abroad in Revelation in Ezekiel 1 and salvation in Habakkuk 3. Light is Yahweh in action. When God moves on behalf of his people, it's considered light, Psalm 44. Isaiah tells us that the servant of the Lord, the promised Messiah, was appointed appointed as a light to the Gentiles, that he might bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49. And in the coming end of the age, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a time when the Lord himself will be a light for his people. That is promised in Isaiah chapter 60. 
And perhaps Zechariah 14 is especially significant. It talks about the promise of continual light on the last day. But I think what's most stunning is these three passages. Genesis 1-3, the very first recorded words of God in all of the Bible are this. Let there be light, and there was light. At the end of the Old Testament, the final words of God before Jesus comes. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. So the Savior that is to come will bring healing. He will be a light that heals. And then at the end of the Bible, at the end of the age, when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 22, 5, no night, the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So from the very first page of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible, we have God speaking about light, bringing light and being light. And then I think what's most fascinating is the immediate context. Jesus is speaking these words in the temple on the the festival or feast of tabernacles or or it's called the sometimes the feast or tavern of of uh, of booths um, and this goes back this was an annual feast that was in instituted in leviticus 23 and it was a reminder it was meant to remind the people every year of god's deliverance from uh from egypt in exodus 3 13 and 14 a pillar of fire led the people out of Egypt and protected them when the Egyptian armies came to attack them. So there's this pillar of fire, this bright and bold light in the sky that is leading and protecting them from their enemies, guiding them through the wilderness. And this feast, this feast of booths, this feast of tabernacles, what they would do is they would gather Uh, once a year for this, this was one of the major feasts, they would gather and what they would do is they were commanded to create a little hut or a makeshift tent out of brush and sticks and leaves. And what they were doing is they would stay for one week in that little makeshift tent. And it was to remind them that they, um, that they were led by God through the wilderness when they spent 40 years in tents and they were vulnerable and they were, uh, they, they were vulnerable to the elements. They were vulnerable to enemies. And uh, it is to remind them that it is God who protects them. It's God who sustains them. And so while they spend a week in these tents at this festival, they're reminded that God has been faithful, that they are fragile in their human state, that they are, succumbed to, they, they are, they are vulnerable to so many um, problems and issues, they, but their God leads them. And what would happen was, is that in the court of women in the temple, there they would set up four 75-foot torches. And they would light these torches in the evening. And they would blaze light throughout the whole temple. And they would blaze light across all of the city of Jerusalem. And they would blaze light, and you would see it for miles from Jerusalem. So as they celebrate this, they're reminded of their frailty, but they're reminded of the provision of God. And they're reminded of the leadership of God. And these, this, the temple would shine. And this is a reminder that God led his people. 
by fire, led his people by light through the wilderness. And he provided and he protected them. It also is a reminder that when the glory of the Lord filled Solomon's temple, it was like glorious light from heaven. So this is the festival that's going on. And Jesus is standing in this court and these torches are blazing light. And people are reminded that they are frail and vulnerable, but that their God protects them and he leads them and he leads them with the light of his glory. It is in this context, if you can just imagine tens of thousands of people gathered with this anticipation, with this picture in their mind, and Jesus stands up in front of all of them and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Can you just imagine the stunning um, impact that would have that as these torches are blazing and people are reminded of their frailty, that Jesus himself says, I am the God who led you in the desert. And I am the God who leads you in your wilderness today. And whatever darkness you're in, if you follow me, you will no longer walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. This is a stunning statement. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is speaking not just in terms of John's theme of light coming into the world and not just Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, but even in that moment saying now immediately, I am with you and I am leading you and I am the glory that fills the temple and I am the glory that leads you through your darkness. So he is in this statement saying that he is the creative order personified. He is the supreme holiness personified. He is perfect wisdom personified. He is complete rightness personified. And he is the divine revelation personified. John 1.4, listen to this. This is amazing. And the word became flesh and dwelt. The word there is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He lived in weak human flesh just like we did. He entered into the wilderness with his people. He tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus entered into our fragileness by becoming a human being. And yet he retained the divine light so that he could lead us, that he could guide us, that he could transform us. When Jesus is saying the I am the light of the world, he's making the claim that he is the fullness and goodness of God brought near to lead you in your darkness. Now, the second thing I want to point out to you is what Jesus says. Jesus basically says that death and darkness exist because of sin. Look at verse 21. So he said to them, he said, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus is saying that their problem, their wilderness, their darkness, the death and darkness of this world is because of sin. That it's not Roman oppression that's their primary problem. It's not the abusive spiritual leadership of the Pharisees that's their problem. It's not their struggle financially or their, their um, difficulty farming in a difficult climate. Their primary problem is sin. 
That's why death and darkness is in the world. That's why we live in a broken world. In the context here, we have this offense that the Jewish leaders are taking of Jesus and they're disputing with him about his authority to say these things. For him to say in the middle of the festival when they're thinking about the glory of God and his leadership of his people, for Jesus to say, I'm that guy. I am the glory of God. I am the leadership. I am the light in the darkness. They take offense to that. And Jesus says, the reason you're taking offense to this is because of your sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is what brings darkness, verse 12. That's the natural state of human beings. Unless we follow Jesus, we will remain in darkness. That's our natural state, is darkness. And our natural state is death in sin. This oppression is worse than slavery in Egypt. This oppression is worse than rule by the Romans. Enslaved by sin is the worst of all human problems. It is the darkness that Jesus came to remedy. Now, I want to point out something that's, I think, very interesting and incredibly significant. In verse 21, he speaks of them dying in their sin, singular. And then he talks about, in verse 24, them dying in their sins, plural. And here's how this works, and Scripture bears this out. Sin is the disease. Sins are the symptoms. So the things that you do, lying, cheating, stealing, lusting, those actually aren't the primary problem. Those are the symptoms. So what we can do is we can sometimes try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder. And in some ways we can feel like we're actually making some progress. We're not as greedy as we used to be, or we've stopped cursing as much or, you know, whatever it might be. But the real problem is that those are just symptoms. If you come in and you have to the doctor's office and you have a brain tumor and that brain tumor is giving you a headache, just giving you aspirin to make the headache go away doesn't help because the headache is just a symptom of a deeper problem. And the real problem is sin. It's a dis disposition of the heart. It's the, it, it's, it's the desire to have ourselves on the throne. It's, it's that part of us that doesn't want to bow to God or questions God or, or rebels against God. Every human being is born with this sinful disposition that, that it calls sin in the singular. A sinful disposition. The sin of unbelief is the root of all other sins. The root of lust and greed and foul language. The, the desire for that which is wrong. Uh, Self-centeredness. That is all at its root one sin. The sin of unbelief. Which comes from a warped view of God. And Jesus is pointing that out. He's like, you will die in your sin. That's your problem. You have a sin problem. And then he also says, but you'll also die in your sins. So both the symptoms and the root disease are the problem. Capital S, sin, is your primary problem. Your unbelief in God, your rebellious heart towards him, your desire to be king of your own life is the root of all other sins. To deal with symptoms is to leave yourself still on the path of death away from God. But you deal with that root. Jesus came to deal with the root. And that's what Jesus is calling out here. Death and darkness in the world is because of sin. But Jesus makes a promise in verse 28. Jesus will make atonement for sin. Jesus said to them in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
Now, the phrase lifted up is very significant in the Gospel of John. It always means crucifixion. Uh, it, it sometimes has a, a, an additional meaning of not just crucifixion, but resurrection and ascension into heaven. So lifted up on the cross as the sin bearer, lifted up from the grave and resurrection, lifted up from the earth to return to his throne in heaven. John means all three of those, but primarily he means lifted up on the cross to be the cursed sin bearer. Jesus is saying, you will die in your sins unless I'm lifted up. The crucifixion of Jesus is essential to dealing with the heart problem of sin. Death and darkness cannot be overcome unless Jesus is lifted up in crucifixion. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing of my own authority but speak just as the Father has taught me. And I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Which means that God planned the crucifixion of Jesus from the very beginning in order to deal with our death, atone for our sin, and bring us into light and life if we will follow Him. Craig Keener, a scholar, says John three times refers to Jesus being lifted up. In one case, he compares the event to a serpent being lifted up in the wilderness, John, in John 3, to make eternal life available to everyone. In the second, Jesus declares that his adversaries will lift him up, which is what we're looking at here. John means by lifting up what Isaiah meant by it, that Jesus would be crucified. John 12, 32 says that when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So it will be Christ crucified on the cross that will be how he deals with our darkness, how he deals with our sin, how he draws people into a right relationship with God, filling them with light and life. It will be, it will be because he will take on all of the darkness and death of our sin upon himself and he will bury it in the grave and he will rise in glory and he will give light and life to all who will embrace him, who will follow him. Lifted up here means crucified. There must be an atonement for sin. Sin requires death. That's why the Old Testament is so bloody, is that God is trying to get us to understand how wicked and vile our sin is. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Either Jesus will die for sins or sinners will die for their own sins. But someone will die. Someone will face the wrath of God. Good Friday was in one sense not good because it was the most evil event in the world. Christ was murdered by the creation he loved, showing the depth of our sin. Christ became sin that he might bear our curse. Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God against human sin. It is a horrible day, the worst day in all of human history. But Good Friday is in another sense the greatest day. A supremely good day because Christ gave himself for us willingly. He willingly gave himself up for us. The grace and mercy and kindness and love of God is shining forth at the cross. At the same time, human wickedness and sin is being displayed in the vicious murder of the only perfect human being. And yet the goodness, kindness and mercy of God is shining forth in Jesus we see God's patient plan brought to fruition. We see that all of those promises of there being a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, that there would be 
uh, that there would be a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of that was coming to pass. We see his promises fulfilled. We hear from the cross, Father, forgive them. And that forgiveness is real. It's true for all who hear that echoing in their heart. It is the best of days because we see and experience all that God is and that our God is for us and he is with us. And we, if we will turn to him. So if you can think of those giant 75 foot torches, blazing light to the city, to the world. So also Jesus is himself saying, I will be that torch. I, the crucified savior on the cross will be the light, the pathway to God. I will deal with darkness and death once and for all. Light will conquer darkness on a cross. And we realize here, this final point, whoever believes will have light and life. Verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And as he was saying these things, verse 30, many believed in him. So belief. One of the things that light does is reveal what is in the darkness. Whenever Jesus appears, the hearts of people are exposed. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. It has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where the light of God comes. C.S. Lewis says something very interesting in Mere Christianity. He says, I am here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man is and was the son of God, or he is a madman or something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was either a lunatic or a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And we see all of those options coming up with Jesus. I want to show you four different responses to Jesus. This will pop up on the screen. There's four responses that we'll see in this passage and that you always see with Jesus. When Jesus comes... Light is shown on the sinner, and the sinner is faced with their sin. And there's four responses you typically see when the message of Jesus, the person of Jesus, comes into play. One is to escape the light, to scurry into the familiar darkness of sin. You hear a rustling in your basement. 
and you go down and you flip off, flip on the light and a rat runs off into the darkness, wants to hide from the light, does not want to be exposed. And so you see that. You see people who will want to avoid the gospel, who will want to avoid Jesus because they hate the blinding light of sin. They want to scurry into the familiar darkness of their sin. Another response is to eliminate the light, to try to silence, discredit Jesus, to make him less intense or convicting. And that's what we see the Pharisees doing is they want to put Jesus to death. They want to silence this man. They do not want the light shining in their lives. They do not want to deal with the claims of Jesus. They do not want to deal with their sin. So they'll escape or they'll try to eliminate the witness of the light. Another way that people deal with the exposure that comes from Jesus's light is to edit the light, to try to redefine Jesus in such a way that he's a little less convicting, that he doesn't come on quite as strongly, that to kind of dodge his words, selecting only what you like about Jesus and then leaving or reinterpreting the things that you don't really feel very comfortable with. So that's another response that we see often is to try to escape the light, just get away from it as much as possible to eliminate and silence it or to edit it in such a way that we make Jesus into our own image or we make him a little bit gentler or kinder or a little more approving of us or maybe in some way try to make Jesus just as a a little bit better version of ourselves. That's one way to do that, but none of that light saves. Editing the light, eliminating the light, escaping the light is to remain in darkness. But there is a fourth, and that is to embrace the light, to own the reality of your sin, to confess that sin and come to Jesus in forgiveness and cleansing, to take Jesus for who he claims to be, to believe in him, and to step into the light, confessing your sin and embracing him as the Savior. In verse 30, we see that some do that. They embrace the light, they come to Jesus, they believe his claims, and they begin to follow him, and they themselves become light. That's what what the Gospels tell us, is that Jesus will actually make us lights. You are the light of the world. We ourselves become full of light. There was a famous French philosopher named Louis Pascal, and he made a what's called Pascal's Wager. And here was how it went. He said, God is or God is not. Those are our two options. It's as if a coin was flipped and heads or tails will turn up. One is true, one is false. There are two options. Either God exists or he does not. And you must wager. Your life, in a sense, is a wager. You choose to reject God, you're taking a risk. You believe that there is a God, the God of the Bible, Jesus as the light of the world, then you're also making a wager. And he says, let's weigh the, the pros and cons of each wager. Let us estimate these two options. If there is no God, then it doesn't matter whether you believe or not. The end is the same. But if there is a God and you don't believe in him, the consequences are eternal separation from him. But if you do believe and there is a God, you will join him in heaven for eternity. So to embrace the idea that there is no God really makes no consequence whether you believe or not. But if he does, the consequences are huge. There is no downside to believing. There's only a downside to unbelief. And that's called Pascal's Wager. So I wonder, what will you do?
The light of Christ is now shining brightly. You now know you're no longer in the dark. What will you make of Jesus? Will you escape him? Running off into the familiar darkness of sin? Will you seek to eliminate his voice in your life? Will you try to edit him to give yourself a little more wiggle room to make yourself not quite so bad? Or will you embrace him for who he claims to be and step forever into the light? Clearly, if you are not a Christian, you need to think deeply about whether or not you will repent and believe the gospel. And even if you are a Christian, how do you respond to his call to walk in the light, to continue to embrace him? We don't just come to him and embrace him once, but we continue to walk in him. We continue to embrace him. We continue to walk in the light. I encourage you right now that as the light is shining on your life to confess your sin, to believe that he is the light of the world and to trust in him. All who believe in him will escape darkness and death and be given life. There are, I want to close with six quick truths. I promise these will go quick. Six truths I want you to know. In this passage, we see the kindness of Jesus. He came and shared in our humanity. The God-man left his throne in heaven above to come and dwell with you and me. He knows how frail and helpless we are, and yet he's so gentle. He is willing and able to sympathize with us, represent us before God, and lead us out of brokenness and sin. He came and lived in the exact same fragile bodies that we do. And it was kind of him to draw near and lead us out of our darkness and death and our sin. I want you to realize the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is the dividing line. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Jesus doesn't leave any other options over, open to us. It's either Jesus or nothing. Only Jesus saves, not other religions, not other saviors, Jesus alone. Believing in him is the eternal dividing line of eternal life and death. Trusting in him, Jesus is the exclusive savior of the world. He is the only light of the world. I want you also to notice in this passage the centrality of the cross. God's holiness demands atonement for sin. Jesus must be lifted up or there would be no light or life for us. Paul says that I resolve to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. Jesus' atonement on the cross was necessary to save you, to bring you into right relationship with God and deal with your sin. I want you also to notice the eternal plan of God. The cross was not an accident. Jesus didn't get caught in the crossfire. It wasn't a plan B and God tried to kind of clean up after the fact. It was promised from eternity past that this would be the plan of God. God saw fit to enter into suffering himself, to bear human sin himself, and to bring us into his glorious grace. The eternal plan of God, it was planned and executed perfectly to bring sinners into his fellowship. And the importance of belief alone. Notice that Jesus says, he who believes will have the light of life. Not he who believes plus lives a good life. Not he who believes plus keeps the law. Not he who believes and stops cussing. He doesn't say those things. It's not belief plus something else. It's not Jesus plus law or works. It's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And Jesus plus anything is nothing, nullifies him. 
He is the sufficient Savior, and belief in him alone is sufficient. And lastly, I want you to see the transformation of grace. That when you receive Jesus by grace, you're changed. True belief in him means that we will no longer walk in darkness. We no longer will walk in the the darkness and despair of emotional darkness. We will no longer live in the darkness of ignorance. We know where we're going. We know God's plan. We have hope. And most importantly, we no longer walk in the darkness of evil because our sin has been dealt with. And we now have new hearts and are filled with his spirit. And so we begin to have hope and humility and walk in holiness. He transforms us. Those who follow him will no longer walk in darkness. True belief in grace results in following Jesus. Following means walking with him, meaning walking in the light, not in the darkness, seeking to please him, glorify him, make much of him. Your your identifying, your defining identity is no longer sin, but Christ. Friends, don't die in your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ now and take hold of light and life now. That's our hope in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic because that's not the worst enemy in the world. The worst enemy in the world is our own sin. But God is the light of the world. Christ is the light of the world and he'll lead us not just out of sin and darkness, of sin, uh, out of sin and darkness, but he'll lead us out of this world. He'll lead us through the difficulties that we face. Walk in the one who brings life and order. Walk in the one who is supreme holiness. Walk in the one who's perfect wisdom. Walk in the one who is your perfect righteousness. Walk in the one who is the divine revelation. Don't escape the light. Don't eliminate the light. Don't edit the light. Embrace the light. Look to Christ on the cross and live. Believe in him and follow. Trust and enjoy him. And keep doing so forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these good words that Jesus is the light of the world, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people, and that whoever believes in him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. God, whatever our area of darkness is, it pales in comparison to the darkness of our sin. And we thank you that you entered darkness, that you experienced darkness, that you conquered darkness, And now we can live in the light of life. Lord, I pray that anyone who's hearing these words now would be in awe of you and would trust in you with their whole heart and their whole life. God, we thank you for these words. Help us to believe them. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you worship with me? You give light, you are love, 
As we transition here, we uh, want to spend a few moments answering some questions. I think Dylan has some questions. I grabbed them. 
<laughs> I tell you what, I will grab my Bible very quickly. Yeah, thanks for hanging in there with us as we are not super professional, but uh, um, <laughs> we do our best, right? We try our best. <laughs> so thanks for leading us today. That was great. Yeah. That was great. So uh, any questions come to your mind from John chapter 8? I do have about seven or six of them. Oh, my goodness. Or six or, no, oh, okay. Okay. Um, I did, I did want to ask, can I ask three questions? Is that okay? Sure. Okay. I know it's a lot. Yeah. Um, first one is obvious for anybody that's been paying attention and following along the last couple weeks as we skipped um, a little bit. Mm-hmm. We kind of skipped the last of... John seven fifty three through um, John eight eleven. Yeah, and I was just hoping you could address that for everybody. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. So what we're doing is we're going through the Gospel of John, and we're just going verse by verse, story by story through it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that uh, we did last week end with John seven fifty two, and then obviously I preached from John eight twelve. So we skipped what twelve verses there. Um, and here's why. Um, if you have a Bible in front of you, you probably have some sort of footnote or brackets or something around this passage. And what you'll see is it, it, there's usually a statement that says the earliest manuscripts do not include this section. Mm-hmm. So this section is a really sweet section because uh, people uh, catch a woman caught in adultery, bring her to Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, saying that, hey, the law says we should stone her. Uh, but what do you think? And Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone and uh, they all walk away and uh, he forgives her and she leaves. It's a it's a sweet story and it's certainly consistent with Jesus's character. It wouldn't surprise me if it's true, um, but it's pretty obvious if you've done the scholarly work that the earliest manuscripts, the earliest copies of this do not have this story. So somewhere along the line, this um, this story of Jesus got inserted um, the way it works is that we don't have the original documents that the New Testament writers wrote on. We don't have that papyrus. Uh, papyrus disintegrates pretty quickly, so you have to make copies. And what we have is in the New Testament, we have about 22,000 copies or fragments of copies of the New Testament. And it's based on those 22,000 that we then can determine what the original copies were. Now, there's a few places where there's some discrepancies, and this is one of them where some copies have this story and some don't. And those that date earliest don't have them. So the closest to the source, if you were playing the game of telephone, for instance, mm-hmm. and you were about the 10th person down and all of a sudden something got was different than what the third person said, you would guess the third person's probably more accurate than the 10th person. And that's the idea, is that mm-hmm. this then shows up in copies about the 10th century. So the eight, 900 years after it was originally written. The earliest ones don't have it. Another reason why I don't think it was part of the original is that this section has a vocabulary that's completely different in the Greek from the rest of John. So it's, it, it's obviously a different writer. And I think somewhere along the lines, this story was written in the margins, and then as it got copied, it got incorporated in. Um, so Uh, Since I don't think it was part of John's original text, we decided to not preach that section. Um, And actually, if you were to take that out and just read it, it flows very smoothly from John 7.52 to 8.12. So so anyway, that's kind of a scholarly answer to the question. But um, (laughs) 
in a sense, um, it, it, all evidence points towards that not being what John originally wrote. Mm -hmm. So although it's, it's not inconsistent okay. with, his, with his character. So. Okay. Um, sweet. I have more questions, but I'm going to try to keep it short. Okay. Um, so I wanted to go to um, chapter 8, 27 through 28. Okay. Um, and could you just read that first real quick? Yes. 8, 27, and 28. Yeah. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Okay. Um, I just wanted to ask you about what, what, is, what does he mean by lifted up? Okay. Uh, I mentioned it in the message, but it talks about... Uh, this is this is a phrase John uses three different times. One is in John chapter three, uh, where he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says, um, verse thirteen, chapter thirteen, or, I'm sorry, chapter three, verse fourteen. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him must have eternal life, and that's that's a story from the Old Testament where the people were bit by snakes and dying of the venom. And God's provision was that a snake, a bronze snake, would be put up on, the, on a pole. And anyone who would look in faith to that provision would be saved. And Jesus is saying, that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be lifted up on the pole. I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And it'll be me that takes the venom of sin from you. And then I think it's John 12, if I remember correctly where he th again talks about being lifted up and clearly means crucifixion there as well. So it's kind of one of those uh, word plays that John uses to indicate Jesus' death on a cross. So, um, Okay, I just want to make sure that we... Yep, yep. So he's clearly talking about crucifixion there. Yeah. Very clearly mm -hmm. predicting his own death by crucifixion. Yep. Um, and then... I did also want to ask you, uh, in, a, in an evangelist kind of mindset, okay. um, like you said, uh, C.S. Lewis was talking about a moral teacher, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, he's a good moral teacher, yeah. but maybe not the son of God. And obviously, <laughs> that's popularly believed, is yeah. that you know, tons of people believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he's a little out there, you know? So right. I just wanted to ask you um, right. how you would address, how would you address somebody's argument that way or maybe not an argument but yeah. lovingly try to lead them towards scripture and towards i don't know if there's any reasoning for that like what's your Kay. coaching for that okay <laughs> sure yeah so if you're talking with someone mm -hmm. and you're wanting to persuade them of jesus being the son of god died on the cross rose again for our sins and they go well i, I can embrace his good moral teaching i would just encourage them to actually read what jesus said yeah. <laughs> because uh, yeah, that, and that's really what C.S. Lewis is getting at is like people who say that haven't actually read all that Jesus has said. So, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, we just in John chapter six, Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, um, you can have no part of me. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know a good teacher that that says that. I would say that. Yeah. Like <laughs> if you're in your engineering class and all of a sudden you're like, this is just such a great teacher, but he wants us to eat him. You know, you kind of <laughs> go. Uh, there maybe is a point where that's not a good teacher. And, uh, and he does tell people that um, 
you know, one man wants to come follow him and he says, but please let me go to my dad's funeral before I come. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Mm-hmm. And whoever, whoever does not hate their family cannot follow me. Like that's, <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's, something a good teacher says, yeah, that's hard. but if he's, so he's either a lunatic mm-hmm. or he's the most deceptive, wicked man in the world, <laughs> lying mm-hmm. straight through his teeth, telling people to go to their death for him, or he is the son of God. And so the idea that he would be a moral teacher, I think is just impossible if you actually read what yeah. he says, because he just, he, 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 and that's C.S. Lewis's point is that uh, there is no way you can read what Jesus says yeah. and conclude he's a good moral teacher on just a human level. He's, he says things that are far too offensive for that. So, yeah. Okay. Well, so, I, so I guess my point would be to answer yeah, your no, question. That's a good Read the Gospels. Like, let's read Mark together, and you tell me if you're comfortable with him being (laughs) a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Like, so. So I think that generally comes from people who have only, you know, it's that editing Jesus that I talked about. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of editing, and I like his, you know, care for the poor, and, Mm -hmm. you know, don't judge, um, and that kind of stuff. But it's like, well, read the rest of it, and I think you'll realize he he puts you in a difficult spot. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Good question. And then yeah. obviously give him, you know, give him a Bible and walk through them with it. Yeah. You know, ask questions. And yeah. Listen and yeah. Yep. 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 Just encountering Jesus and go deal with what's here. Either accept or reject yeah. him, but don't redefine him. Yeah. Don't course. put words in his mouth. Don't mm-hmm. change what he said. Either accept or reject him. And so that would be. Of course. Okay. So that was, cool. my, that was my last question. That was it? I thought you had like six or seven. I decided not to ask. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Okay. Very good. Well, let's turn this around on you. What we've done in each of these. Oh, I should say, I should say, um, if you have a question about the message or Christianity or about our church, then comment somewhere. I think I have, yep, right over here. You can, uh, there's a place where you can leave us some information and uh, we, we would definitely follow up with you. I'd be happy to answer your questions um, or give you information about our church. So this is a couple of good ways to do that. You can also on the YouTube channel, Facebook, wherever you're viewing this, leave a comment and I will check that and I will respond to you. So um, anyway, but what we've done at the end of each of our services is just had a kind of a get to know you interview. Mm-hmm. And so now it's your turn since you're the only one here. <laughs> yep. And we haven't true. talked to you yet, but you are the first one that doesn't have a, your name start with a J. That's good. Because we had Jordan the yeah. first week and, Josh. and then we had Josh mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we had Justin, mm-hmm. and so now you're Dylan, but we're going to change your name. Yeah, DJ. To <laughs> <laughs> uh, that still doesn't start with J, but close enough. <laughs> you have a new baby, so I don't expect you to it's true. know how to spell. Okay. Yep, I do not. Um, so question number one, <laughs> I have it written right there so I don't forget it. Um, okay. Tell us about your life and how you came to Christ. Briefly. Give uh, us the brief version. Actually, I'm going to look at that because oh, okay. yep. obviously you jotted otherwise I'm a storyteller and I just get off on this track okay. just like I am right now. Great. Um, Tell us about. Yeah. So I grew up in a godless home, um, kind never really hearing about the gospel, never hearing about Jesus. Um, and so just to keep it plain, like my family didn't go to church, didn't really like they just like what you said, probably more just saying like those are good morals kind of in that kind of a household but not really living out the gospel until um, later on in life I became this popular kid because I've always had parents who are in a band and for some reason it's really cool to fifth graders and sixth grade, you know, it's cool to kids and kind of became this popular kid. I was good at sports, I was tall, I could sing really high, girls thought it was cool 
And so I just lived this life of being a popular kid um, and kind of being a bully. And then later on in eighth grade um, in middle school, I met this kid named Joshua Reeves, who was actually up here not too long ago. It's too bad he's gone now, but that's okay. We <laughs> prayed for him last week. <laughs> we yeah, but he's yep. moved. Yep. Yep. He's moved. Yep. And um, I really bullied Josh for a while with some other kids and Josh's endurance and um, through persecution of just like, you know, kids bullying other kids really spoke to me and spoke to other kids. And eventually he won us over with his friendly demeanor <laughs> and his uh, steadfast love for us and praying for us every day. Um, there's tons of stories there. But um, eventually it leads to this point where me and Josh are going to church together back when Pastor Paul was here and you weren't here yet. And I liked it because there was dodgeball and free food, and every kid loves those two things. So I end up coming here, and then Josh gets a job here, and we he's immediately like, we're going to to Nebraska. We're going to Lincoln, and we're going to go to the Data Share Conference. <laughs> and we go there. I get converted, um, which is a crazy story, but it's not like right away that I realize everything because obviously I haven't been paying attention to youth group at all, not to offend you or Paul. But it's really – I, it was really like that was the start of the journey. Like God is real. I believe in him, but I don't know anything about him. So I come back and start to walk with Christ and go to church, even though I fell asleep a couple times, and just start to learn about who Jesus really is, who I really am, how deep my sin is, and um, come to just walk in faith with Christ and build a relationship. And now yeah. I know him, and yeah. I, you know, I still know him. That's great. That's great. <laughs> and there's tons of other stories after that, if you would ever like to talk about it. But for the sake of time, um, he changed my whole family and my whole life and just who I am now. So not a bully anymore. I'm quite a nice guy. <laughs> so and very that is, humble. That is my very humble. No, I'm still a sinner. <laughs> yeah, praise God. So, yeah, so just uh, a gracious Christian befriending you, kind of putting up. Mm-hmm. with your mistreatment of him of and continuing to show the love of Jesus drew you to the point of, mm-hmm. and then God's church and the gospel totally changed your life. Amen. Praise God. That's awesome. So tell us about your wife and your newborn son, newborn how you son. guys met. It is. Have I just tell us about your family, my family. Um, well, this is good. <laughs> We're both a little tired. Um, Theodore Wesley Hansen is his name. And he's absolutely a diamond and really cute. And uh, he goes to the bathroom a lot, which is okay because I'm learning how to change diapers for the very first time. But it's good for me. And I don't really have anything else besides that. He's a baby. He does baby things. And then uh, Alyssa and I met actually um, August 7th, 2017. We sat down for our first date in Perkins. And um, we kind of met at church, and then we go to – Perkins and it was supposed to be like an hour or two and we ended up talking for four hours um, just sharing our testimonies and talking about what Christ has done and it was just this immediate kind of deeper friendship than just somebody I met from church or somebody I went to cross conference with was just this immediate you know deepening of a bond mm-hmm. and it just kept carrying on through there and it was just like God if she's not the one throw me a red flag I don't know you know like and so I just kept pursuing her kept pursuing her and God kept pushing me and things kept happening and and um, then we got married, and now it's been almost a year now. It's been 10 months, and we have Theodore. And, uh, yeah, that's life so far. So married 10 months, but have a baby already. But have a baby, yes. Wow. Yeah. Honeymoon yeah. baby. Honeymoon baby. Congrats. Yeah. That's that's awesome. We love 
Alyssa and uh, Theodore, although we've only gotten to see him on a screen, but mm-hmm. I'm so glad for you guys and grateful for God's grace. And you got a lot to think about. Lots to think about. Yeah. Yep. That's a lot of <laughs> transitions in less than a year. So, but you're handling it great. Um, and then the last question is, tell us about your calling, how you're moving towards that. What is that looking like in terms of service in God's mm-hmm. kingdom? Yeah. I think my calling's changed quite a bit over the years. Like, you know, um, at first it was obviously when you're just a Christian, you're just like trying to figure things out. Like what's going on? Just like a baby, just like Theodore right now. Doesn't know what's happening. And Mm -hmm. figuring things out and realizing eventually, you know, I want to do ministry somehow. Mm -hmm. I want to serve God in his church and vocational ministry. I don't know if that means teaching or worship leading. I don't know if that means just humbly serving. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of changed and been challenged over the years, over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. And really, I think it's come to this point in the last four or five months to just be where I am right now and to really just focus on my relationship with him and what comes, comes. And to focus my ministry on my family and my time and my effort on my family and um, with Theodore now, and obviously he doesn't understand everything, <laughs> English, you know, but um, <laughs> sure. But being yeah. with my wife and, and her being my primary ministry and Theodore being my primary ministry and just evangelizing the guys I work with and um, asking them questions, you know, just like we were talking about and asking them hard things and seeing how they respond and and trying to give answers if they ask and um, right now it's just at a stage of wanting to go to school and going to make that transition in um, August to go back to school with John Witherspoon and um, getting my bachelor's of uh, I don't know why I can't think right now Christian ministry Christian ministry yeah something like that okay good and so um, going through that and um, that's where I'm at. Great. Is just being where I am and focus right now and don't focus so much on what you're, what I'm going to do. Yeah. Who, you know, where God calls me to be. Cause I don't know where that's going to be. Yeah. Well, you definitely, cause I was there the moment you were converted and mm-hmm. almost from the very get go, there was a, a, a desire put in your heart to, to serve the Lord and mm-hmm. pastoral ministry. And it's just, yeah, you know, that's had to kind of sit had to and slow down, a little bit. Slow down yeah. and let maturity catch up, let spiritual, mm-hmm. um, spiritual growth happen. And uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Just be faithful where you are and God will determine Mm -hmm. the length and breadth and shape your ministry will take. So that's, that's good. Praise God for that. Cool. Well, thank you, Dylan. Yeah. I will uh, close us out with a benediction. Okay. I'm going to step off stage. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for serving us so well this morning, brother. Uh, Our call or our benediction today comes from first John one verse seven. Uh, This is the same author who gives us the Gospel of John. He later wrote an epistle, um, a letter to some Christians just to encourage them in their faith, to stay faithful to him. And listen to what he says in 1 John 1, 7. I hope this is a blessing to you. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I pray that's true of you that you have seen the light today, that you come to the light of Jesus Christ, that you walk in that light and know that your sins are forgiven in Jesus. So whatever darkness you may be in, whatever death you might be facing, you have a Jesus who is with you, who has triumphed over all of those things and will, will sustain you and protect you 
and keep you through them all. So God bless you and thanks for joining us. I hope you have a great Easter morning. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.